welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly news analysis and update podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, uh, and this week we're going to be talking still about the QAnon conspiracy theories, continued unrest in the northwestern region of the United States, and finally we're going to have a history lesson about Romania's most famous fascist. All right. Starting out this week, like I said, uh, we have continued developments uh, on the uptake of the QAnon conspiracy theory or system of conspiracy theories, really, uh, by the United States right wing. Most recently, we have some developments here in the sense that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, has gone further in his apparent endorsement of these kinds of claims. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar or haven't been paying attention, QAnon is a modern, like a, a contemporary, the most recent uh, version of a long-standing right-wing attack on elites, quote-unquote, and also on cultural others. Specifically, QAnon claims that elite people, specifically in the Democratic Party, basically, uh, are part of some sort of international pedophilia ring and that they engage in international human trafficking, specifically of young girls and boys who they groom and sexually exploit. Now, that's the conspiracy, right? And according to QAnon, who claims to be a member of the United States Intelligence Service, this has this is a sort of like open secret within the government of the United States and involves uh, people in the governments of many other Western countries. Uh, but it is primarily, or at least originally, it is a conspiracy about the United States. Now, what this means is that QAnon believers often refer to their opponents as pedophiles. That's their that's their primary insult. Uh, that's their primary accusation. And recently, uh, this week, Donald Trump retweeted such an accusation against Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president, former vice president, uh, calling him a pedophile. Now, the fact is that both nominees for president, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, have credible accusations of sexual assault and other sexual crimes uh, that have been raised against them over the last several years. However, this specific accusation, the specific genre of sex crime that, that, that QAnon conspiracy theorists accuse their opponents of, specifically pedophilia, has its origins not really in any contemporary scandal, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein situation notwithstanding. Its origins date back to old conspiracy theories about the Masonic League and, and about Jewish people uh, who are, well, were, <laughs> we're talking like as far back as the Middle Ages, uh, accused of participating in child sacrifice, um, in uh, cannibalism, eating children, specifically Christian children in the case of Jews. Um, QAnon is a contemporary version of that. Uh, it is a an anti-elite conspiracy theory that believes that the world functions specifically in order to facilitate the functioning of this death and sex cult, effectively. Now, QAnon has been a part of Donald Trump's political movement for a very long time. You started to see Q, like like just the letter Q, banners being held up by people at his rallies uh, years and years ago, like at the very beginning of the movement. He is moving further and further in the direction of openly embracing it, though. And that is a very disturbing development because it indicates the extent to which this kind of conspiratorial and anti-Semitic, anti-Masonic, anti-elite conspiracy thinking is 
really, really taking hold in the Republican Party uh, and also in the campaign of Donald Trump to be the president. I would not be surprised if he continues to double down on this rhetoric uh, as his rivalry with Joe Biden intensifies uh, over the next month. Speaking of rivalries intensifying, we have the continued civil unrest in the United States. Specifically, uh, I'm talking about in the northwestern states of the United States. Specifically, we're talking uh, Oregon and Washington and partially Idaho. These are places that already had significant far right militia movements uh, already ongoing before 2020. Those have only intensified this year. Uh, we've seen the growth of groups like Patriot Prayer, which is a sort of umbrella far-right organization. The Proud Boys, the largest pretty openly fascist group in the United States. Uh, the Northwest is also home to a lot of these sort of like sovereign citizen, libertarian militia types. Uh, people, people who think that the government is, you know, out to take people's guns, those kinds of people, right? As the COVID-19 crisis deepens, uh, destroying regional economies and pitting citizens against a government that they think is restricting them from living their everyday lives in the interest of preventing the spread of the virus, and as the election ramps up, and as this region of the country and the world is facing a pretty much unprecedented, at least in living in recent memory, um, an unprecedented wildfire crisis that is shutting down roads, destroying entire towns, killing lots of people. These militia organizations are coming into their own in a way that they haven't been in the United States uh, uh, in recent memory. Uh, we have seen several incidents in the northwestern states in Oregon and Washington where members of militia groups, vigilantes, have been taking it on their own to shut down streets and prevent people from entering or leaving zones where fire is spreading. We've seen militants question people and accuse them of setting the fires. This is part of, you know, the QAnon conspiracy that I've talked about before uh, that suggests that uh, agents of global elites are setting these fires, you know, that, that, that Antifa is setting these fires for some reason. Mm -hmm. These militia groups have also tried to detain journalists, uh, which is just like just just like straight up illegal. Uh, it is not legal for a citizen of the United States to try to restrict the movement of another citizen on public land or on a public road. That's illegal, uh, irrespective of whether that region has been shut down by the police or the fire services uh, because of the danger of fire. We've also seen uh, and this is. I think more disturbingly on, on, on the side of unrest in, in, in the Northwest, Attorney General Barr, Trump's Attorney General, uh, has apparently called for sedition, uh, to be the charge against people who participated in, uh, the last several months of Black Lives Matter protests that were extremely large and especially powerful in cities like Seattle and Portland. In Seattle, if you recall, uh, they set up a no-cop zone, quote-unquote, uh, a several-block radius within downtown Seattle where uh, they did not allow police to enter, and it was a sort of freedom zone. Now, 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 now those things are not particularly unusual in the modern era. That, that happens a lot, actually, in protests. You know, an example might be the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, also Freetown Christiania in Denmark, for example. However, 
deciding that the people who participated in that might be charged with sedition, which is as in like treason, like treason against the United States government, like as if they were trying to set up some sort of other government within the country. Um, that's clearly, clearly too much, right? It, it, it's clearly overstepping the bounds of what these people were actually doing. But that is, of course, the point. Uh, Barr is specifically making this threat or asking this threat to be made in order to tell people, to tell protesters, if you are a protester, he's trying to tell you this, that the government of the United States, specifically the Trump administration, will crack down on people who continue to protest uh, against the police. Uh, that the United States will use every means in its power to stop those protests from happening. We've already seen people killed because of this. Uh, for example, it's been suggested and it seems very likely that Donald Trump uh, basically ordered the United States Marshals to shoot the suspected killer of the right wing militant who was shot and killed in Portland uh, last week. Barr apparently has also suggested that the mayor of Seattle be tried criminally for allowing this, quote, you know, anti-cop, free cop zone to exist within his city. Uh, again, this is a clear threat to predominantly Democratic mayors of large cities in the United States saying, hey, if you don't crack down, we will and it'll be your ass, you know, that that, that you will actually be punished by the government of the United States for failing to do what Donald Trump wants you to do. If that isn't an authoritarian move, uh, I don't know what it is. All right, finally, we have a bit of a history lesson for us all. A prominent fascist born this week in history. This week, we're talking about Cornelio Zela Codreanu, the most famous Romanian fascist. Uh, born this week, September 13th. 1899. He is a perfect, like a pitch perfect example of a typical fascist trajectory. Uh, he was a law student from the middle class. His father was a teacher. He was relatively young when he began his political career. You know, he was in school. He was a young law student. And he joined various youth militant groups, nationalist groups, uh, anti-communist groups, uh, anti-Bolshevik groups specifically. Remember, this is the early 1920s by this point. Uh, the Russian Revolution has just happened. Uh, the Russian Civil War is concluding. The communists are winning. Bolshevism as a specific genre of communism is spreading widely, but especially in Eastern Europe and the rest of Europe. And in Romania, um, Romania had just experienced massive defeat in the First World War. Romania's borders were massively shrunken uh, in, in the interwar period. And Codrianu is a nationalist. He's a young nationalist. He was too young to serve in World War I, so he has this sort of like chip on his shoulder thing, which actually quite a lot of fascists do. Uh, typically, they're either people who did serve in World War One, so like in the 1920s and 30s, typically fascists are either people who did serve in the First World War or people who desperately wanted to and were not allowed to for one reason or another, either some health reason or because they were just a little bit too young or because their country was neutral. Now, after joining various right-wing militant groups and moving in and out of them, this is, you know, a sort of historical gloss, uh, Codrianu, with some of his friends, founds what will become the most famous and successful fascist Romanian organization, the Iron Guard, also sometimes known as the Legionnaire Movement. 
this was founded in 1927. It is a it is a textbook fascist group. They are revolutionary. You know, they think that the existing order needs to be overturned. They are anti-communist. Specifically, they are anti-Bolshevik. They're also highly critical of the functioning of capitalism because they think that it detracts from, you know, the natural order of the world or some sort of organic order of the family and the state. Uh, often their uh, economic rhetoric is not exactly particular when it comes to how they think that things should work, but they know how things shouldn't. Uh, their criticisms of capitalism are openly anti-Semitic. Um, this connects them to historical Romanian nationalism. Like other nationalists, they're also critical of ethnic groups that border them. Uh, one particular target of Romanian nationalism in this case uh, was Hungarians. Uh, Codrianu was also heavily uh, anti-Roma. Uh, in this, he mirrored uh, the Nazis, whose primary ethnic targets were Slavic people, Jewish people, Roma. Right? It's 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 pretty pretty textbook stuff here. Um. He also promoted a connection between the Romanian nation and the legacy of the Roman Empire. You know, Romania is uh, one of the Slavic countries that speaks a Romance language, uh, and this has to do with Roman history, right? So the Legionnaire movement begins as a paramilitary group, and it's incredibly successful. Uh, as time goes on, Romania outlaws paramilitary groups, and so the Legionnaire movement transitions into being a political party with a militant paramilitary core. And they go on to contest various elections and are the most successful 10 years after their founding uh, in 1937, when they win about 16% of the vote. And they're the third largest political party in Romania at this point. The largest political party in Romania is the Christian Democratic Party, which is a super right-wing party, but is not quite as openly of a fascist party. Um, they're not quite so revolutionary. They are anti-Semitic, but they're not specifically openly calling for the elimination of Jewish people in Romanian borders, which, which the Iron Guard was. Um, and again, perfect textbook example, the Legionnaire movement, this actually blatantly virulently fascist party cooperates with a slightly less right-wing slightly more conservative as opposed to far-right party the christian democratic party uh, and they form a government together they then use their power uh, in their electoral victory and their paramilitary power to destroy the the political opportunities uh, of their opponents primarily uh, the left and people who did not want massive government violence uh, against uh, the nationalists' supposed ethnic enemies, the people that they wanted to target with state violence. And then once that was done, the more established normative right wing, uh, in this case the Christian Democratic Party and their ally, the king of Romania, um, King Carol II, turn on the fascists and purge them from the government. Uh, Codrianu is... Uh, accused of all sorts of seditious things. He is sentenced summarily uh, and then dies uh, before he is able to actually achieve any of his more transformative fascist goals. Um, of course, Romania goes on to be something a little, just a little, just a little more than a puppet of the Nazis. Uh, I mean, they're a, pu a puppet, but they're, they're a little bit more independent than that during World War II. Uh, they, of course, lose. 
um, and face even more problems uh, as time goes on. Now, once again, I want to emphasize Kodrianu is precisely the example that you should be thinking of when you think about the growth of fascism in the present day. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's not like the government itself is like, hey, we're fascist now. What happens instead is that fascists grow independently at the bottom of society. They're an independent political movement. They get co-opted. They work with the more typical right wing, the more established normative right wing. And then usually at some point after the formation of that coalition, there is a contestation of power between the more established right and the more extreme right. Most of the time, the more established right wins and the fascists are either purged or just subjugated. But sometimes the fascists win that fight. And that's when you get something like Nazi Germany or Italy. All right. That was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism. Once again, I'm Craig Johnson. I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our graphics intro and outro music. And I'll talk to you next week.